Uh, yeah, here we go. Uh, we're wrapping up a series that is, I for, keep forgetting to look how many weeks we've been in this. It's been many, many weeks. We started last fall sometime, and uh, we're wrapping up the series in Genesis, Lord willing. I'll just say that because i got to cover two chapters today and really kind of give you an overview of all of Genesis. We'll be out of here by noonish sometime, but um, <clears throat> no, we're going to try to get done in, in a good time, but the book of Genesis has been so uh, foundational for us, and it's obviously foundational for the Christian faith. It talks about beginnings. It really tells us about who God is and what he's like. And if you get Genesis wrong, you really get who God is wrong. If you get Genesis wrong, you're not going to understand uh, what it is that God wants from you and how it is that God helps you, uh, what God is like, anything along those lines. And really, like the Bible Project says, the Bible Project is an organization that produces amazing videos. If you don't know about that, you should know about it, bibleproject.org. You could go there. That would be um, absolutely awesome. But they, they say this. They say uh, Genesis really talks about God's, God's plan to rescue and bless his rebellious world through Abraham's family Israel. And that's really what it is about. It really is the beginnings of telling us about how God is rescuing humanity. And I don't know if you've seen the news lately, but we need rescuing. And we, on a continual basis, need to be rescued. And in addition to that, Jesus is returning and he will rescue us eternally, those of us who know him and have faith in him. And so this is an amazing truth that we have. The problem is that between here and there, oftentimes we do not uh, have any context for exactly how do we continue to grow? How do we continue to have faith? And if you're like me at all, uh, what you find in your life is that you kind of continue to keep missing it. You kind of continue to, to kind of not quite measure up with who God is. But then there's some of us as well that kind of sit in pride and we think that we're, we, I, I've got this done. It's, it's handled. Uh, life is good for me. I act like a Christian. I hang out with Christian people and things like that. Never really realizing that we have this great bit of pride. I was thinking about my own life, how it's a little bit like when I first learned to drive. When I was like uh, 14 years old, I worked all summer, got $300, bought a 1972 Ford pickup with a 400, and it, it was very fast, but totally smashed on the right-hand side, but I had my own pickup, and the steering was a little bit loose, and so what, as I was driving down the road at night, I would be driving uh, down this road, and I would con I'm looking right in front of my pickup here, and, I, and, I, and I'm trying to stay between the lines. And then somebody finally told me, hey, Matt, you've got to look ahead. You can't look right in front of your vehicle. You need to look ahead like, you know, 100 yards or something like that because that's how you see where you are today. And that's a little bit of what Genesis is like. As we see these people and their struggle and what's going on with them and and what's, what's happening in their lives is that initially they're looking right where they are, but then as they continue to grow in God, they begin to look ahead. They begin to look at the, the future of what God has. And so ultimately, their hope in God's promised future leads them to faithfulness in their present circumstances and beyond. So hope in God's promised future leads them to faithfulness in their present circumstances. I want you to turn with me to Genesis chapter 49, and I'm, I'm going to read. I think I might uh, do a little bit of uh, skipping a little bit here because we don't have a ton of time, 
And so I'll, I'll give you a brief overview of some sections, I think, and, uh, and then we'll, we'll read that, and then we'll come back to it. So Genesis chapter 49 uh, says this, Then Jacob called for his sons and said, Gather around so I can tell you what will happen to you in the days to come. So Jacob is the grandson of Abraham, and here's Jacob, and he's about to die. He's in Egypt. His son Joseph had gone ahead of him to Egypt, was really taken there, had become a ruler in Egypt. And so now the family of God is in Egypt. And here they are, and Jacob is about to die in Egypt. Joseph is right there with him. And so Jacob begins to say, uh, I'm sorry, he begins to bless his sons or to leave his blessing with them. And so he says in verse 2, he says, Assemble and listen, sons of Jacob. Listen to your father Israel. Reuben, you are my firstborn, my might, the first sign of my strength, excelling in honor, excelling in power. That seems pretty good, right? It seems like a nice, a nice uh, statement over your life. Turbulent as the waters, you will no longer excel. Oh, wow, Dad, that's kind of harsh, like you're about to die. You're going to leave me with that? That's, that? that's where we're at? Yeah. For you went up onto your father's bed, onto my couch, and defiled it. Reuben had committed incest with his father's concubine. An awful story. But here's the oldest son. He's supposed to be taking the reins of the family, and yet instead of getting a blessing... He's really just kind of left with a curse. And so this blessing is really kind of a prophecy as to what God is doing and is going to do in their lives. It says in verse 5, Simeon and Levi are brothers. Their swords are weapons of violence. Yeah, we're tough guys, they're, they're thinking to themselves. But Simeon and Levi, I don't know if you remember this, but Simeon and Levi are the two brothers that were the most angry about their sister Dinah who had been raped. And when Dinah was raped, they were indignant because their father didn't seem to care. And so they went and they slaughtered this entire family and all of the people because of what they had done to their sister, Dinah. And so he says, their swords are weapons of violence. Let me not enter their council. Let me not join their assembly, for they have killed men in in their anger and hamstrung oxen as they pleased. Pleased, cursed be their anger so fierce and their fury so cruel. I will scatter them in Jacob and disperse them in Israel. Uh, that's uh, three out of three right now that are curses so far. So here we have Judah, and I don't know if you remember Judah, but Judah is this son. He's the uh, fourth son. And Judah is the guy who uh, kind of mistreated his widowed daughter in law. And instead of giving her his next son as the custom would have been, and as he told her that he would do, instead of doing that, he withheld his son. And so uh, his daughter-in-law went and stood at the gates like a Canaanite prostitute, seduced her father-in-law without him even knowing because her face was covered. And ultimately Judah ends up impregnating his widowed daughter-in-law. Horrific story. Horrific story. So our expectation here right now is this, is that we've got three out of three that have all experienced curses. But let's look at Judah. Judah, your brothers will praise you. What? Your hand will be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons will bow down to you. You are a lion's cub, O Judah. 
You return from prey, my son, like a lion. He crouches and lies down like a lioness who dares to rouse him. The, sh- the scepter uh, will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until he comes to whom it belongs. And the obedience of the nations in, is his. He will tether his donkey to a vine, his colt to the choicest branch. He will wash his garments in wine, his robes in the blood of grapes. His eyes will be darker than wine, his teeth whiter than milk. I'm not sure that I uh, appreciate that, you know, dark eyes with, uh, because of wine or white teeth like milk. But this is a blessing. It's basically saying that, that this guy is going to be an amazing ruler. The ruling class, the royal family will really be this family. This is where David comes from and many other uh, kings. But the greatest kings come from this family. David and Solomon come from this family. But then from David comes the Messiah, that is Jesus. And so here is Judah, a guy who impregnated his widowed daughter-in-law. And what's being spoken over his life is a blessing that says this, that out of you is going to come the greatest. Out of you is going to come the greatest, and there is going to be incredible wealth in this family as well. As well, So much wealth that they're going to wash their garments in wine. They're going to tether a donkey to, uh, to a vine, and apparently that means that uh, they have a lot of grapes because the uh, donkey will be eating the grapes, something along those lines. And so that's a good thing in this passage. And so we see this. It goes on, and each one of these... Uh, men. They are heads of these families. And so there's these blessings, and it talks about their future. And then it gets to, to Joseph, and Joseph has an amazing blessing with many, many words. In fact, I'll read it. Verse 22, Joseph is a fruitful vine, a fruitful vine near a spring whose b- branches climb over a wall. And it goes on and talks about how great Joseph has been. He's his favorite son, but he's also going to be very fruitful in life. It says in verse 28, All these are the 12 tribes of Israel, and this is what their father said to them when he blessed them, giving each the blessing appropriate to him. And so Jacob leaves this blessing with them, and then it says this in verse 29. Then he gave them these instructions. He said, I'm about to be gathered to my people. Bury me with my fathers in the cave in the field of Ephron the Hittite, the cave in the field of Machpelah, near Mamre and Can and I almost said Canada, uh, in Canaan, uh, which, uh, or not Mormons, no. Uh, so Mamre in Canaan, which Abraham bought as a burial place from Ephron the Hittite along with the field. There Abraham and his wife Sarah were buried. There Isaac and his wife Rebekah were buried. And there I buried Leah. The field and the cave uh, in it were bought from the Hittites. When Jacob had finished giving instructions to his sons, he drew his feet up into the bed, breathed his last, and was gathered to his people. So here's Jacob. He finally dies, but he leaves them with uh, some final instructions. He says, hey, there's a burial plot in Canaan. Canaan is the land that God had promised to Abraham. I'm going to give you this land. It's going to be between here and here. And here is Jacob, his grandson, who is still believing in this promise. It's the same promise that Abraham believed and it was countered to him as righteousness. And here's Jacob also believing the same promise. And even though he's not going to see the day that Israel finally lands in Canaan, he still says, I want you to bury me there because I believe that that's what's 
uh, going to happen. I believe in God's promise. And so here he is. He's going, uh, he's going to die, and he's still believing God. And it says in chapter 50, verse 1, Joseph threw himself upon his father and wept over him and kissed him. Then Joseph directed the physicians in his service to embalm his father. So the physicians embalmed him, taking a full 40 days, for that was the time required for embalming. And the Egyptians mourned for him 70 days. When the days of mourning had passed, Joseph said to Pharaoh's court, If I have found favor in your eyes, speak to Pharaoh for me. Tell him, My father made me swear an oath and said, I'm about to die. Bury me in the tomb I dug for myself in the land of Canaan. Now let me go up and bury my father, and I will return. And Pharaoh responds and says, Go up and bury your father as he made you swear to do. And so what happens is they go and they bury uh, Jacob and Canaan, and all of these Egyptian officials and all of these people come and really mourn with them. And it's this incredible picture of what God has done in the life of Joseph and in the life of Abraham's family, that they're absolutely blessed to the point that they're being honored by this pagan nation. And so God's blessing is really being seen here, especially as they are faithful. Jacob saying, I want you to bury me in the land that God promised. I'm looking to God's promise, and I still believe that it's true. And Joseph enacting that, and God having worked out Joseph's uh, life and his position and his power to bring him to this place. It says in verse 15 of chapter 50, We're going to skip ahead here a little bit. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, what if Joseph holds a grudge against us and pays us back for all the wrongs we did to him? So they sent word to Joseph saying, your father left these instructions before he died. He didn't really. They're lying. This is what you are to say to Joseph. I ask you to forgive your brothers the sins and the wrongs they committed in treating you so badly, selling you into slavery. Now please forgive the sins of the servants of the God of your father. When their message came to him, Joseph wept. Joseph begins to weep. And I wonder if Joseph is thinking to himself, my brothers don't even know who I am. They don't even understand what's going on. Have I even lifted a finger? I've only cared for them since they've been in Egypt. Joseph as the second in power in Egypt has been caring for his family. He's loved his brothers. He has only wept, not when he was in the midst of difficult circumstances. The scriptures at least don't tell us about it. But the scriptures tell us about when Joseph weeps, and he weeps over his brothers, when he sees them for the first time again, and then a couple of times in there, and then here now, as he's sitting there and he's saying, don't you even know me? Don't you know who I am by now? And so he weeps. It says in verse 18, his brothers came and threw themselves down before him. We are your slaves, they said. But Joseph said to them, don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. So then don't be afraid I will provide for you and your children. And he reassured them and spoke kindly to them. And that's important because his brothers could not speak kindly to him when they sold him into slavery. It says that. And so we wrap up the life of Joseph here in verse 22 and following. 
Joseph stayed in Egypt along with his father's family. He lived 110 years and saw the third generation of Ephraim's children, also the children of Maker, or Makir, uh, son of Manasseh, were placed at birth on Joseph's knees. Then Joseph said to his brothers, I'm about to die, but God will surely come to your aid and take you up out of this land to the land he promised on oath to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And Joseph made the sons of Israel swear an oath and said, God will surely come to your aid, and then you must carry my bones up from this place. So Joseph died at the age of 110, and after they embalmed him, he was placed in a coffin in Egypt. Really, this whole passage kind of points us to a couple of things, and that is that these men, specifically Jacob and Joseph, had hope in God and what he was going to do in the future. They had hope in God. And so as a result, Joseph is able to say, hey, you intended me harm, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done. Joseph's able to look at his life and he's able to say, hey, listen, I, I, I understand that you wronged me, but the truth is, is that God's plan is much bigger than what I realized. And so he doesn't react to this and he doesn't go after them and he doesn't kill them. But then you also see in Joseph's life when he says, I'm about to die, but God surely will come to your aid in verse 24. Joseph's firm belief is this. I'm about to go, but I got to tell you that God is going to come to your aid. He's leading his family in this. God is going to come. He's going to help you. He says it again. God's going to come to your aid. And then he ends with saying, hey, get my bones out of here when you go. Why? Because of his future hope. See, what's going on with Jacob and Joseph specifically is this, is that they're driving an old truck at night, especially Jacob early on, and his life is kind of swerving all over the place. He's missing it. And then as he grows, as he continues to grow, he begins to look further and further and further ahead he begins to hope in God in a new way. And God is doing something amazing through this. God is doing something so amazing through this, and ultimately he is affecting his plan to rescue and bless his rebellious world through this family. But it didn't look like that in the beginning. It did not look like this at the beginning of the book of Genesis. I don't know if you remember if you've been here with us or if you were with us when we started, but God creates everything good. He blesses his people, his creation. It says in Genesis 1:28, and God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. God starts creation and he blesses it. And so his blessing like exists over all of creation. It operates in the context of relationship with him in this, this understanding and this trust and this hope in who the creator is. But what happens very quickly after that, as we see in Genesis chapter 3, is that Adam and Eve sin against God. And instead of believing God and staying away from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they decide to take matters into their own hands and believe that God is keeping something from them 
And so they decide that we're going to become our own Lord and Savior. We're going to become our own God. We do the exact same thing. We do the exact same thing as we say, I'm, I, I think I know best in my life. And instead of hoping in God, what we do is we hope in self. Instead of seeing the future of what God has for us, that future land that God has said, I'm to you and to your descendants, I'm giving this land. Instead of looking at that, we look right here and right now and we say, this is what matters right here and right now. And just like in Genesis, we also kind of fall apart. If you look at the next few chapters, just kind of a cursory reading over that, we quickly go to Cain and Abel. Cain kills Abel. Cain kills Abel. He's a, he's a violent man. And then after that, we come to uh, the, the Nephilim, who are these men of renown, these men who are wicked and corrupt, essentially demon-possessed beings that come into the world and they corrupt everything. And so it says in Genesis chapter 6, verses uh, 5 through 6, it says, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continu continually. And the Lord regretted that he made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So we go from Cain and Abel, and I missed one, Lamech, who's a violent man, and then we go to the Nephilim, these men of renown, and they're, they're wicked. There's more corruption and more corruption and more corruption. This is what happens as we look to ourselves to be God, as we look to ourselves to make our own rules, to say, I know how to make life work out. And so then God says, I'm going to fix things here. And so he, it says that Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. And so here's this guy Noah, and he's going to use Noah to build this ark and destroy all the other families. So all of the bad people get wiped out. And so here's Noah. He's a good guy. He's a guy that's found favor in the eyes of the Lord. He's a guy that has righteousness. He kind of walks with God. It's pretty amazing. And our expectation is this that things are gonna go much better now. All of the bad people are gonna die, just the good people are left. But everyone gets wiped out in the flood and here we have Noah and he gets off the boat, he becomes a man of the soil, he makes a vineyard, he gets wasted, ends up drunk in his tent and it's clear that he has sinned. And then as a result, his son Ham sins. And then after that, we have Nimrod a guy's actual name. Nimrod is a guy who creates a city called Babel. And here we have Babel, and Babel is uh, this uh, city that says, hey, come, let's make a name for ourselves. Let's build this massive tower, and everybody will see that we're amazing. We see this in our culture everywhere. Let's, let's make a name for ourselves. Let's do this. Let's build an identity. Let's build a life that's independent of Yahweh, that's independent of God. And what happens as a result? God comes down and he sees what they're doing. And he confuses their language and he disperses them. And the point of all of that is this, is that God blesses all things. Humanity comes in and corrupts it. And as a result, it, it just devolves and it devolves and it devolves. But then we get to Abraham. And so it says in chapter 12 of, uh, of Genesis, 
It talks about how the Lord calls this guy Abraham, or Abram at the time. And so he calls this guy Abraham, and, and everybody's thinking, okay, now the good guys are going to win. Abraham steps in. And if you've been in church for any amount of time and you know about this guy Abraham, one of the things that you see is that he's presented as a hero. Be like Abraham, and then everything will go great for you. But guess what? That's just another way to live independent of God. It's another way to live independent of God, and it's really overlooking who Abraham actually is. God calls him, and this is what God says to him. In chapter 12, verse 2, he says, And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. Remember what I said. God starts creation, and he blesses it. Man takes things into uh, his own hands and brings about a curse. God brings Abram into the mix, and he says, guess what? I'm going to be the one who blesses you. In you, all the families of the earth are going to be blessed, and you're going to be a blessing to everyone else. And so he calls Abraham, and so we think, okay, the good guys are going to begin to win now, but the problem is, is that Abraham lies twice about his wife, saying that she is his sister, and then he takes this concubine, or this wife, Hagar. His wife says, hey, go into Hagar since I can't have kids. Go have a kid with my handmaiden. And so he does. And he doubts God in the midst of that. And yet it says of him, it says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. And so then we go to, to Isaac, and we think, Okay, maybe things are going to progressively get better, but Isaac is not a good father. Isaac shows horrendous favoritism. It doesn't tell us a ton about Isaac, but what it does tell us is this, is that he favored Esau over Jacob. And so Isaac is not a great father, and so our whole idea that like, okay, now God's going to fix it with the right people, our whole idea is this, is that, is that that's, this is going to happen, and then God's going to make all, everything better, and I just need to act like Abraham or Isaac. But Isaac isn't a great father. He's a guy who still has sin issues. And then Jacob comes from Isaac. And Jacob is this swarthy individual. As I said several times, he's, he's just a guy that would have been living in his, his parents' basement, playing video games all day. I don't know. I mean, he just was not a great guy. And here he is, and God's blessing like exists in his life, and yet he cheats people. He's impulsive. And then finally, he begins to get cheated, and, and God begins to make headway with him, and yet Jacob is still not a very strong father. He's still not a strong guy. He still has many, many issues, but what's true about his life is this, is that God has blessed Jacob. God has blessed him. God, ha God is making him successful. And so this is what God is doing in his life over and over and over again until you get to the beginning of this passage where you see this guy Jacob and he's somebody who is essentially the mouthpiece of God 
and he's speaking blessing over his family. He's speaking the words of God to his family, and he's speaking the truth. And then we go to Joseph, and Joseph is, is this guy who's very much like a Christ figure, and here he is, and he is totally sold out for God to the point that he's able to say to his brothers in chapter 50, verse 19, don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? I don't want you to be afraid. I am not God. This is what he recognizes. He recognizes I am not God. And then he says this incredible statement that many people have said is really just something that could be posted over the whole book of Genesis. It says, you intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. See, when we look at this, we see this guy, Joseph, and we, and we can kind of think of ourselves as though we're Joseph, and we need to think about the idea that uh, all these people are trying to get us down, and God is the one who's going to work in and through this. But the truth about it is this, and that is that you and I are very much like these brothers. You and I are very much like the brothers who have been working to harm, not just him, but working toward evil. The same evil that's existed from the very beginning. God blesses thing, the, things, the curse comes as a result of sin, as of a desire to be independent of God. And then our lives, just like all of these other lives, when you look back over Cain, and you look at Lamech and his violence, and the Nephilim and Nimrod and the city of Babel, and then God calls his guys, and these guys really aren't any better. What is the difference between these people? See, I'm no better than Abraham. I'm no better than anybody in the scriptures. And Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph, these guys aren't really just good guys in and of themselves. They are guys who are blessed by God. They are guys who are being led by God. God, and even in the midst of their sin, there's something about them that continues to hold them strong, that continues to allow them to grow. See, many of us as Christians, we come to this point where we do not grow anymore. We come to a point and we hit this ceiling. We hit a ceiling in life. And it's like, I've already been there. I've already done it. Many of you, if you're, if you're in Christian college right now, one of the things that's going to happen to you is you're going to be inundated by Christian scripture and Christian teaching and Bible study and Bible study and Bible study and chapel and whatever else it is. And many of us have been inundated with these things and we come to this point where it's just like, it just gets to be too much. It just comes to a point where our growth just kind of gets limited and older believers as well. This is where we get stale and lifeless churches. When we come to a point where we think that we have arrived, when we think that we have, I've made it to be a good person. I'm like Abraham. I'm like Jacob. I'm like 
Joseph, that kind of a thing. When we get to this point, but what we don't see, what we fail to talk about, is that Abraham was Abraham not because he was a great person, because he was a liar, and Jacob was a cheat. These guys were not great guys because of themselves. They were great guys because God blessed them. God blessed them. God gave them a promise in this blessing. And the promise was this. I'm going to make you fruitful and I'm going to multiply you, and I'm going to make of you a great nation, and I'm going to give you a land. I'm going to give you a people, and I'm going to go before you. And throughout the book of Genesis, we see God saying, I'm with you. I will be with you. I will be with you. And so what is their responsibility? What's their role? See, I don't think that any of these guys would have been where they are. Any of these guys would not, have been, would not be seen as heroes of the faith if one thing didn't exist, and that is hope in God's promise. Hope in God's promise. See, when you don't have hope in God's promise, you do silly things like sleep with the handmaiden. When you don't believe in God's promise and God's absolute sovereignty over all things, including salvation, you get back at your brothers as soon as dad is dead. When you don't believe in God's promise, you can come to a point where you say, you know what? I'm a pretty good person. God should like me just like I am. When you don't believe in God's promise, what happens as a result is that there is complacency and sin and corruption that begins to happen in our lives. But what's true about these guys is that they had hope in God's promised future. And what that led them to was faithfulness in their present circumstances. Their hope in the future of God. They looked down the road. They were not looking right in front of the truck. They were looking down the road. They were looking way far ahead. In fact, it could have been over the next hill. But God said, it's over there. I'm pro I promise you that I'm, I am going to be a blessing to you. It's over the, that next hill. And instead of them just looking in front of us and saying, hey, let's build a tower so that we can make a name for ourselves. What they said is, God already made a name for us. God already made a name for us, and our hope is not in our ability to fulfill all of this goodness and this righteousness and all of that. Our hope is in the ability of God to fulfill that in me and in the future. And what does this do? What does this do? It releases you from the need to control your, the details of your life. It releases you from the need to try to control your circumstances. It releases you from the desire to try to be something that you're not, which is God. See, Joseph fully believed this. Joseph fully believed. He, he says this, you intended it to harm me. You intended evil in my life. But God 
intended it for good. See, Joseph isn't just saying, hey, good's going to overcome evil. Joseph said, my God is so sovereign. I believe so wholeheartedly in the sovereignty of who this God is that I believe that he not just creates good, but he uses evil for his good. He uses evil for his good. So whether they're in the midst of, of, of plenty or whether they're in the midst of need, they're in this place where they're able to say, I hope in God. So Joseph doesn't have to get back at them. And Jacob can say, hey, bury me in the promised land because I still believe in the promise of God. And you see his life. You see him grow as a result as he continues to hope in God and believe what God has for us, has for him. For us, it says this in John 14, verse 1. It says, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. See, what Jesus says is this. Like, the same thing is true. He says, I go to prepare a place for you, and he says, that idea, the reality that I've given you a land, that I've given you a place, and it is with me in eternity in the kingdom of God, in the city of God, Jesus says, I go to prepare a place for you, and that fact, that idea, is what allows us to not allow our hearts to be troubled, to not allow ourselves to be thrown off, to not enter into the sinful patterns that we continue to find ourselves in, to not be somebody who has to enact vengeance right here and right now, but to be somebody who's hoping for a better place. See, our hope overcomes our present circumstances. Our hope is in the promises of God that have been fully given to us in Jesus Christ. And the promise of God is this, that Jesus became sin for us, even though he did not know sin, he did not have sin, but Jesus becomes sin for us so that in Jesus we might become the righteousness of God. Our hope, men and women, is not in our ability to be some amazing, be like some amazing hero from the Old Testament. Our hope is to hope in the same God. Our power comes from hoping in the same God that Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and all the rest hoped in. And to look ahead to the future that's promised through Judah, the promise of Jesus that comes through Judah, to look for our hope in him and be able to say with Joseph, you intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, 
the saving of many lives, the saving of my life. When you hope in God's plan, in God's certainty, God's sovereignty, you get to live like that. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you so much that you came to earth, that you took on flesh, that you accomplished perfection, not so, so that we don't have a responsibility to live in righteousness, but Lord, to, to show us the right way, but Lord, to perfectly accomplish salvation. And so Lord, this morning as we come to you, Lord, I think there's many of us in this room that don't have our hope in you. Lord, we may have prayed a prayer at some point in a church service, or we may have sent up some type of uh, a prayer, some idea that I, I believe in God. But the truth is our hope, our residing hope, is not in you and what you have promised. And so, Lord, I'm praying for our church today and for those who are just here visiting, Lord, that you would bring about a great hope in your plan and in your purpose and in your sovereignty that is way out in front of us. We can't even see it. But, Lord, I pray that we would believe not just believe in you, but believe you. Lord, it's in your name we pray. Amen.